Well, good morning. My name is Dwight Waldrop, and we'll be reading this morning from Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. If you'd like to follow along on your phone, or there's a Bible in the pew, or your own personal Bible, as I read, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that, that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. <clears throat> but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering of you, on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were... One among you who would shut the gates, and you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its food is to be despised. <clears throat> you also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdain sniff, disdainly sniff it at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what is taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so that you bring an offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Dwight. Well, good morning, guys. All right. Good to see you all this morning. One of the last beautiful days of fall. All right. It's going to be 29 degrees on Wednesday morning, so just prepare for that. Um, but today is Family Worship Sunday, so once a quarter we just invite the kids into our church service so we can worship as a family. Uh, today, I think for the first time, I have my oldest daughter here, so we'll see how I do based on if she falls asleep today. So <laughs> she's, she's staring at me right now, but thank you for being here this morning. Uh, today we're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. We're going to be going from verses 6 through actually chapter 2, verse 9. This is the next dispute if you remember last week, the book of Malachi is broken up into six different disputes between God and the nation of Israel, all on one word, on being genuine. And so we see in the book of Malachi, we see God challenging the nation of Israel on being genuine in their worship, genuine in their obedience, their tithe, their marriage. And so that's kind of what we're talking about today is genuine worship. What does it mean for genuine worship? Let me ask you a question, true or false? Important things over time become mundane. Let me repeat that. True or false, important things over time become 
rote or routine or mundane? Say true. Okay. Thank you. That's the answer I'm looking for. Um, because think about it. I mean, I'll give you an example of it. True or false, it's really important to pay your mortgage. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, I had one time a, a tenant not found out how important it really was for her to pay her rent. Okay. Didn't have well for her. Uh, moving on from that story. But true or false, it's important for us to pay our rent. And we only find out its importance uh, when, we, when we don't actually pay it. That image, that illustration of a mortgage is, a, is the illustration of our worship. That over time, I think, I think over time, we realize that worshiping God, that having a genuine worship of the Lord is important, but it just becomes something that we do, something routine, something mundane. It just kind of, in a sense, loses its significance in our life. And a lot of times we think of worshiping God as just on Sunday morning. But worshiping God is every moment of every day. What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31? That whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do it all for the glory of God. That over time, our worship, our genuine worship of God just becomes something that we just do specifically on Sunday morning. So what does it mean? You know, what does it mean to be genuine worshiping the Lord? What does it look like in our life? Well, that is the space that I want to talk to you about today in Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 2, 9. So if you have your Bible, today we're going to be talking about genuine worship. What does it look like in the life of a believer to worship the Lord our God? So to kind of paint the picture this morning, we are spending our time through the Minor Prophets this fall. This is our eighth week in the Minor Prophets. We spent two weeks going through the book Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. In a word, the Obadiah, Obadiah is in the word pride. Then we spent four weeks going through the book of Malachi, and we saw, or excuse me, four weeks going through the book of Haggai. I'm getting my names confused this morning. And we saw in one word, the book of Haggai is mission. We see a man named Zerubbabel and a man named Joshua given the mission to rebuild the temple. And then last week we began our time in the book of Malachi, and Malachi in a word is the word genuine. We're going to spend six or seven weeks going through the book of Malachi and seeing the different disputes that God has with the nation of Israel. And what we saw last week, we kind of unpacked the background information of the book of Malachi. We looked at the occasion, we looked at the date, we looked at the author, the audience, just kind of painting the context for the book of Malachi. And then what we did was we unpacked the first dispute, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. What I find interesting about this book is that before God kind of uh, picks on them and their tithe and their marriage and their worship and their obedience and their view of truth. Before he kind of picks on them, he picks on himself and he proves once and for all to the nation of Israel that he truly does love them. This is in Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. So it says, I have loved you, says the Lord of hosts, but you say, how have you loved us? I believe that they know intellectually speaking that that God loves them, but what are they doing? What's the problem? That the nation of Israel is looking at all of their surrounding circumstances, and they're looking at that as the proof in their mind that God has kind of forgotten about them, that God no longer cares and no longer loves them. Friends, I would think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that you probably know, intellectually speaking, that God does truly love you, that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. 
But when we doubt God's love, what are we typically doing? We're looking at our circumstances in life. We're looking at pain and trials and saying, Lord, all this stuff in my life points to that you don't care about me anymore. So what did we talk about last week? That when we doubt God's love, what should we do? We should look to the proof of his love for us. We look to the cross. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We look to the cross. We look to his selection and predestination of our souls. We'll talk about that later. And we also look at the blessing that God has given to us in Romans chapter 8. But today, God last week puts his love on trial. Before he picks on them, he picks on himself. And then in verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1, he picks on the nation of Israel and he talks about their sacrificial system and their view of their worship of God and how they make sacrifices and atonement for their sin. So today is dispute number two over genuine worship. Now, I got to tell you, this second dispute over the issue of worship is the longest dispute in all of the book of Malachi. So we have a lot of ground to cover. It goes from verse 6 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 9. So I'm going to probably blow your hair back a little bit this morning if you, if you still have some hair. Um, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, this is where he begins talking about their worship. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master... Where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, notice that. Who is he talking to? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So specifically here, he's talking to, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through 2, 9, he's talking to who? The priest. But I believe also he's talking to the whole uh, nation of Israel. When I see verse 6 in this phrase, I get the kind of memory of high school. When the teacher stands up in front of the whole class and scolds the classroom, and then everybody in the class knows who they are really picking on. Okay, remember that little thing in high school? So I believe that God is talking to the nation of Israel, but he's specifically pointing out the priests. And what I see here in verse 6 is that genuine worship of God begins with a proper view of God. Let me say that again. Genuine worship of God begins with a proper view of God. If you notice here in verse 6, we have a statement. God, this follows the pattern of every dispute in the book of Malachi. God makes a statement or a charge or an allegation. Then Israel responds. And then God answers with evidence as a whole. So what is the charge that God puts forth to the nation of Israel? It is that they despise his name. O priests who despise my name. Okay. That word in Hebrew, despise, is the Hebrew word bizarre, and it means disdain or contempt um, or despise. But kind of to put it in a little bit more English way, and it says it in this verse, is a disrespect. That the priests, that the nation of Israel are disrespecting the name of God. The quickest way, appearance in the room, the quickest way... For me to get angry as to my child is what? Is a show of disrespect. Any parents agree to that? In the, in the, you know? No? Okay. All right. So the quickest way for my children to make me irritated, Brenda, I'm giving you tips, baby. Okay. So here's my seven-year-old down there. Um, is to, to show disrespect. Now, 
they show Mama Bear disrespect, Daddy gets really mad. Okay, nuclear bear. Papa Bear comes out in droves. They don't like that. But the quickest way that parents, you know, react and become angry is a show of disrespect. Why? Why does that anger every father? It's because that they are the parents, that they are in charge, that God has put them over the life of their children. And here I see God does the exact same thing, that the nation of Israel is defaming, despising, disrespecting the name of God. And why? A parent gets mad over disrespect because they are parents. God here is getting mad over the of them despising his name because what does he say? It says that he is father, that he is master, and according to verse 14, he is a great king. Their view of God dictates their worship of God. They have a great view, as it says later on in this passage, of a governor. They have a better view of a governor than they do of God. They don't really see God as sovereign, as father, as master, as king. I think that the Israelites just see God as somebody that sits in the temple that will accept anything, that he is a distant clockmaker who doesn't really care about the way they bring forth their sacrifices. Their view of God dictates their worship of God. It's the same thing today. That genuine worship begins, is built upon, has a foundation of a proper view of God. If we saw God for who he truly is, that he is our father, that he is king, and that he is master, we would, we would view worship very differently. So God makes an accusation, a statement that they are despising his name, and then they respond. Notice in verse, the end of verse 6, but you say, how have we despised your name? That sounds like my five-year-old Olivia. I won't pick on Bryn because she's in here today. That sounds like my five-year-old Olivia. What, 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 me, right? It's like when I walk into her room and there's an orange crayon on the wall and I start to get irritated and she's like, I didn't do it, right? And then she holds, she's holding the orange crayon in her hand at the same time. That's what I feel like the nation of Israel is doing here. The nation of God is saying that you've despised my name, that you've defamed it, And then they say, but how have we despised your name? Notice he continues on in verse 7. How have they disrespected God in their worship? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, again, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. What are they doing to defile the table of the Lord? Verse 8. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? So wait a second. What is he saying? That you have a higher view of earthly authority than of heavenly authority. Why does he say that? Because the nation of Israel would never think to sacrifice the leftovers of their flock to a governor, but they give their leftovers to God. Genuine worship begins with a proper view of God. They're disrespecting the Lord. They're defaming his name because they are not offering God their best. They're not offering God their best. They're offering lame and blind animals. They're directly contradicting the Levitical law that we'll see here in just a moment. 
Um, out of all, out of all the people, out of all the beings in the whole universe, who should we worship with our best? It is God. He is Almighty. He is sovereign. I think underlying in the nation of Israel, they just simply don't have a fear of the Lord. That's why they offer to him blind and lame and sick animals rather than obeying by Levitical law. What does the law say? I mean, the nation of Israel out of anybody should have understand exactly what God had wanted. Because to this point that God has taught them, if you've ever read the Old Testament, right? God blesses them, then they fall away from the Lord, and then God punishes them, and then they repent, and they bring... Out of all the people in the world that should have understood what God wants, it is the nation of Israel. Because this is in Leviticus chapter 1. The very beginning of the book of Leviticus is the law of atonement. What exactly they're supposed to bring to sacrifice to the Lord. This is in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 2. Right at the beginning of the law, it says this, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from your herd or your flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the temple of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The nation of Israel, in the book of Leviticus, right at the beginning of the law, is told exactly what God wants. That God doesn't want their leftovers. He doesn't want the lame and the sick lamb in their field, but he wants the very best. Genuine worship begins with a proper view of God. If we have a proper view of God, that he is father, he is master, and that he is king, that we in return will want to offer him our best in our lives. A lamb without blemish is the only sacrifice acceptable to God. Why? Let me ask the question. Why is a lamb without blemish the only acceptable offering to God in the Old Testament? It's because God himself is without blemish. That God himself is without sin, without tarnishment. That is why Jesus Christ had to be the lamb of God without sin, without tarnishment. Only a perfect lamb could be sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. What does John call Jesus? Behold the lamb of God. What does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might, what, have the righteousness of God in him. Only a blemishless lamb, one without spot, is sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. This is out of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time. I want you to listen to this. Maybe this is part of the problem in Malachi. Every priest stands daily. Um, If you do something every single day, what do you typically do? It becomes kind of mundane. I think that's part of the problem. Every priest stands daily, ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, 
sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And all God's people say, only one blemishless son of God could be sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. But if you're a shepherd in the 5th century B.C., and you're sitting there in your flock, let's say you have 20 sheep, and you know that that day you're supposed to take one of those lambs and take it to the temple, and you're supposed to slay it on the altar to give worship and to praise the God to atone for sin. What is your temptation? The temptation is great. Do I take my most prized sheep that is supposed to be the father of generations to come, or do I take this one that's going to get eaten by wolves anyways? That's the temptation. That they would look at their herds, they would look at the sick and lame, and that they would not sacrifice to God what is their best. Giving God your first reveals that he is first in your life. Giving God leftovers reveals that he is second. So Israel is told by God to give them their best, not their blind and lame. And they say, what, what, what me? In verse, and then in verse 9 Look what God is asking for. But now will you not entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. In other words, what? That you'll approach me when you need something. Sounds familiar. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly? Notice this in verse 10. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. What does God want? He is pointing out in verse 9 that, oh yeah, the nation of Israel will sacrifice perfect blemishless lambs when they need something from me. But what is God saying here? That if there was just one amongst the nation of Israel that would do it properly, according to Levitical law, to bring me their best, one with, that wasn't blind and lame. God's charged them is that they've despised their name. Their retort is, what, me? How have we done that? We're bringing them. Hey, hey, God, we're at least trying here. We're bringing our sheep to the priests. But why does God demand their best? Well, first off, it's because of who he is. He is master, he is king, and he is their father. But also because of one more thing, verse 11. From the rising of the sun, even to setting, my name will be great among the nations. I want you to notice this phrase. My name will be great, not just among you, but among the nations. Why does God demand them to bring their best? And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. That's the second time he said that. Showing emphasis, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the Lord... The table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Why does God demand their best? Why does he demand a lamb without blemish? Well, number one, it's because of who he is, but because of his own glory. That he wants his name to be great among the nations. Let me put it in today's terms. How many of you have ever known... Somebody who claimed to be a Christian, but was only a Christian on Sundays. 
How many of you have ever worked with a coworker that says they go to church, but then you work with them Monday through Friday, and what? You don't see it in the slightest. What does that do? Think about a non-believer for just a second. Somebody who publicly professes that they are a believer in Jesus Christ. What are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be the salt and light of the earth. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be set apart. And here the nation of Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to stand out by their attitude, by the way they worship the Lord. And when they don't, when they offer to God their seconds, what do the other nations say? Well, I would never offer my God that busted lamb, okay? What do they say? They look in the nation of Israel when they sacrifice subpar animals, and they say, well, their God must not be too serious because he lets them get away with that. Friends, we've all known Christians that profess to be a Christian on Sunday. But when we carry that into the workplace, when we don't live as different, what are we saying about God? We're compartmentalizing God to just church instead of carrying the worship with us to our everyday life. But then notice their response. So God desires glory. They're despising his name. He desires their best because of who he is and because his name is to be great. He's meant to be glorified to all nations. The nations are looking at them, making up their mind about who God is. And then notice, you also say... First off, they said, what? What are we doing, right? How have we despised your name? God points it out. And then they say here, well, how tiresome it is to bring my lambs to the temple. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed, (laughs) notice what he calls people who don't bring their best. I want you to catch that. But cursed be, what is that word, the swindler, who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished lamb to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Genuine worship begins with a proper view of God, that he is sovereign, that he is master, that he is father, that he is a great king, that he is deserving of our worship, of our glory, of living a life that is consistent. I believe in verses 1 through 6 through 14 of chapter 1, God, in a sense is picking on the nation of Israel. He's kind of talking to the priests, but he's really talking kind of to everybody at the same time. But man, in chapter 2, this is the reason there's a chapter division in chapter 2, verse 1, is he kind of changes audiences. He talks to all of the nation, and now he talks to just priests in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice what he says to them. Now, I'm just going to say... We live in a politically correct society, okay? And this is not politically correct. And that's okay. We say, oh God, that's kind of mean, what he's about to say. But he's God. He can do what he wants. Verse 1, and now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, 
Then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already. Man, this is a wake-up call. Have you ever had a wake-up call before or ever given somebody one? This is a wake-up call to the priests in the nation of Israel that they better get serious about their life or something bad is about to happen. Because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces. This word means dung. I thought I mean I thought I meant intestines, the intestines that you offer on altar. No, that word means dung. I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to the Lord that my covenant my, may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Here in chapter 2, he calls out the priests, the nation of Israel, for how they have behaved, how they have not taken the sacrificial system seriously. Okay. I want you to think about Jesus' ministry for just a second. When was he most angry? He was angry at the Pharisees, yes, okay. But when was he most angry? He was most angry in the temple, that one in the beginning and one at the end, that Jesus came in and what did he do? He overturned the tables and what did he call? He said, you're making my father's house a den of robbers. Why was he angry at that particular moment? Listen, out of all the people in the world that should have been righteous, that should have lived differently, that should have made proper sacrifices, that should have told people who brought their lame and blind, no, that of all the people that it should have been serious about genuine worship to the Lord, it was the priests. They do it for a living. They do it all day long. Notice in verse 7, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, that they are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And of all the people that should live a righteous life, should speak righteously, should live a life that is glorifying to God, it should have been these guys. And God, the consequences to the priests are that God will rebuke their offspring and that they will spread refuse on, God will spread refuse on their faces. But then notice, let's continue on in verse 5. My covenant was with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned back many from iniquity. What is he saying here? What is he, what is he, wait, let me back up. And he walked with me. What is he saying? He's talking about Levi, who is the father of the tribe of the Levites, and the Levites became the priests. Track with me. So what is the covenant to Levi? What is he? He walked with me in peace and uprightness. What is he telling them? This is what I want you to do. He walked with me in peace and in uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. Wait. What is he hinting at? He's saying that when those people that come into the temple and they do not bring their best, turn them away. Tell them to come back with what God has required. Can I speak? The priests are the spiritual leaders of Israel, and they are under stricter judgment. 
They're under stricter rules, stricter guidelines. They're under more of a microscope, a magnifying glass. And I think it's the same today. That if you're a spiritual leader of any kind, whether it's a WANA leader, a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a spiritual leader of your home, whether you're a spiritual leader at work, that you are under a stricter judgment. You have a higher standard. And God will judge you for it. Is that true? Is that biblical? Yeah. James 3, chapter 1. What does it say? Let not, what? Many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. If you are a spiritual leader, if you are a father, if you are a mother, if you are a teacher here, if you serve in any capacity, God expects more from you. That your worship is not just on Sunday morning, but you carry that worship with you every day of every week. 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You can't control how other people live away from you, but you can control how you live and you can control how those people live for God with you. I think um, there's, a, there's a famous preacher uh, I listen to, and he, he has this thing in modern Christianity. He says that in churches today that there is an 11th commandment, that thou shalt be nice. Okay? That's from Body Bakum. Thou shalt be nice. Um, we, we don't like to tell people the truth what did what does the scripture say speak the truth in love we don't have to be mean but if people aren't living consistently outside of this building we should talk to them about it because they are different they're supposed to be a light to the nations they're supposed to stand out that the people of the world should look inside the church and say that god is serious because those people are serious those people are passionate those people are genuine And it all comes down to our genuine worship of God. And then notice the final consequence to the priest. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by my instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despise and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. In other words, what? That some priests are concerned about some people sacrificing the right thing, and some priests are not worried about, are worried about or allowing lame and blind animals to come. Let me just speak frankly. Um, genuine worship begins with a proper view of God. Genuine worship is about giving God your best. Let me say that. I'm going to fix a misconception in churches today. I think a lot of times we think of worship as something that only happens on Sunday mornings. But it happens every moment of every day. And God, in those moments of worship, asks not for our leftovers, but for our best. The best of our time, the best of our resources, the best of our money, the best opportunity that we have to lead and to care for our wives and husbands and children God asks for our best, our first, our first fruits. But oftentimes we're just like the Israelites. We're just like the priests, man. We, get, we give God our leftovers. You know, leftovers are never as good as the first meal. Amen? 
Everybody reheated pizza in the microwave, okay? It's not, it's not good, okay? That's, but that's kind of what God's saying. Hey, man, you're giving me the microwave pizza, all right? I want the first. That's what God wants. That's genuine worship, friends. The dispute is this. Is Israel's worship genuine? This is kind of the whole crux of the passage. And then he answers the question, genuine worship is giving God the best because of who he is. Because he is father, because he is master, and because he is king. So then the question, I'll I'll leave that up here for just a few more moments. You're taking notes. And if you're a spiritual leader, you're under stricter guidelines. God holds you to a different standard. Let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing as such you incur a stricter judgment. That the world is looking at you, people are looking at you, and based on the way you live, they will decide if God's name is worth worshiping and following. But the question I have is, so what? You know, what does this look like in real life? So I'm going to leave you with a couple different questions, just kind of mull over. And this is the questions that I asked myself this week. If genuine worship is giving God my best, then question number one, does God get it? Um... Does God get my best? And I, as I looked upon my life in, in, in the Rolodex of things that I do, uh, there's one area that I say, you know, Lord, I don't know if you really get my best. It's my time. That we as people just kind of wake up in the morning and just kind of let life happen to us. You tracking with me on that one? That we kind of take life and we kind of mix in a little bit of work and mix in a little bit of family and mix in a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of entertaining and we kind of mix it all around and we kind of just call that life. But I think we should give God our first, our first fruit, our best of our time. You know, when I was in college, I realized that my best time in the afternoon was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's my, that's my cream of the crop. Man, that's when Byron is at, is clicking on all cylinders. Okay, right after lunch. You know, when I was in college, I would set that, side, that time aside. But just as you get busy in life, it's easy to let the world kind of clutter your schedule. Does God get your best in your personal time, in your personal life, in, in every area of your world? And then question number two is, if God doesn't get the best of a certain area, then what does, it view of, what does that reveal about your view of God? Um. I think we know God to be sovereign, God to be omnipresent, God to be omnipotent. We know it to be true, but we don't know it to be true. I think sometimes we kind of compartmentalize God. We don't carry him with us everywhere we go. And I think that's what the Israelites did. They compartmentalized. They put him in the temple. That's where I worship God, but I don't worship God in every other moment of my day. But what does a life of worship look like? I'm almost done. I got, I got four more minutes. Hang in there. My. I hear her over here. Okay, hang in there, baby. I'm just glad you didn't fall asleep. Okay. All right, mission accomplished. Um, what does a life of light worship look like on a daily basis? And so as I was thinking about this sermon, kind of letting it simmer and... And all that stuff, 
It was like Saturday morning, and if you know my preaching style, I'm a little bit meticulous. I don't change, make changes on Saturdays, okay? I'm not one of those preachers that come in on Sunday morning and jot down an outline real quick and then preach it. I don't do that. I mean, I'm like uh, anal retentive, okay? I'm a little bit uh, ridiculous when it comes to my preparation. But, so I don't change anything after Friday night. But then, but then Saturday I woke up and I said, what, what does it look like? Do we have an example of genuine worship of God? Think about a small passage of Scripture that we see a genuine moment of worship. I thought about Isaiah 6. This is what it says. In the year of King Uzziah, his death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty, exalted, with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And the one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. That is a proper view of God. Isaiah is sitting there seeing the magnificence of God, and he hears the angels, holy, holy, holy. Genuine worship begins with a proper view of God, i.e., especially his holiness. So we see the proper view of God in the throne room, and then we see Isaiah's reaction. Then I said, woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Worship is beholding God's holiness. And then in response to God's holiness, what do we do? We repent and understand and acknowledge our sin before God. And then we do one more thing. And then I heard the voice voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go forth for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. On a real pragmatic basis, a life of genuine worship begins with understanding who God truly is. But I can't say this more. It's beyond just understanding who he is, but beholding it on a daily basis, putting it in front of our face that as we drive, as we work, that we remember who he truly is. It is remembering his holiness and his greatness and his love for us. Number two, when we behold God's holiness as an act of worship, we confess our sin. When we look at the greatness of God, it causes us to instantly look at ourselves and say, I ain't like that. We go before the Lord and we confess our sins and he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And genuine worship then causes us to then live for him, to make a difference, to carry his light to the ends of the earth, to be consistent, to be good spiritual leaders, knowing that we are under stricter judgment, that we are consistent like we are in church, like we are in home, like we are at work. That is a life of worship. Before I close, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, if you don't know where you stand in your relationship with him, 
He has come and he's offered his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin in full, that if you would believe in him, that you shall be saved. What does the scripture say? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that you shall be saved. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. If you do not know, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, feel free to see me after the service today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for just... Uh, your magnificence and your greatness. I pray that we would have genuine worship in every area of our life because we behold and we see you properly. And Lord, I just um, I thank you for this church. I just thank you just for the generosity and their care and their love for people. And Lord, I just pray that this would continue, that we would take what we have in here with one another to the ends of the earth, that we would go out as lights and be different, and let people see our different lives, and want to have what we have. Be with the rest of our service today. We rejoice with baptism that is still to come, with two lives that have come to you. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.